So today we're going to talk about making presentations. Some of us are terrified. Some of us do it, but dread it. Few of us excel. Well, we're going to learn about this today. So this is the HR Hub. I'm Andrea Adams, and I talk with expert guests about all kinds of HR-related things. You can also find me on YouTube. Today, my guest is again, Brendan Kumarasamy. He's a public speaking coach with his own practice and his own YouTube channel called Master Talk. Uh, I had a great time chatting with him last time about public speaking confidence, and I ha- learned a ton. And today, we're going to talk about presentations. Hi, Brendan. How are you? Always a pleasure, Andrea. I'm doing great. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. And I totally enjoyed the last one. So we're going to talk about presentations specifically, which people in HR are often giving. So talk to me about that. What are the key elements of a well-structured presentation? And actually, is that even where we should start with this conversation? Absolutely, Andrea. Well, normally the answer would be no, but because we already did a part one together with all of the 18 balls and the nuances, the answer would be yes in this case, because we're building on the last episode. Okay. So just to recap what you've just said, there are a bunch of public speaking uh, skills that we should practice before we ever talk about structuring a presentation. You're All right. Let's talk about the structured presentation. Absolutely. So, so now we move into balls five to 10, just the analogy for those who, who haven't okay. seen part one. Communication is like juggling 18 balls at the same time. And one of those balls is facial expression. One of them is knowing how to structure a presentation. One of them is knowing how to listen. And it gets confusing. So the question now is how do we practice each ball individually so we get better at it? So the first step is a strategy I teach called puzzle, Andrea. So now the question now becomes, when we work on a jigsaw puzzle, whether it's 500 pieces or 1,000, which pieces do we start with first and why? And the answer is, oh, it looks like you know. Go for it. The edge. Exactly. Why is that? Because they're the easiest ones to find. So yes, you're absolutely right, Andrea. It's a lot easier to find the edges. So why am I bringing that up in the context of presentations? Because unfortunately... When we prepare at NHR, in corporate, in life in general, and we're learning how to present, we unfortunately do the opposite. So we shove a bunch of content down the middle. Then we get to the presentation. We ramble throughout the whole thing. And then the last slide sounds something like this. Uh, Yeah, so uh, thanks. Not the right approach. So instead, what you want to do is practice like a jigsaw puzzle. Start with the edges first. Work on your introduction and practice it 10 to 15 times. That sounds like a lot of work, but it really isn't because your introduction is two minutes max. So this is literally a 30-minute exercise. Same thing with the conclusion. What's a great movie with a terrible ending? Last time I checked, Andrea, terrible movie, right? So same thing with the close. 10 to 15 times on the close, another 30-minute exercise and then tackle the middle. Whereas the mistake that many of us make, not just in the corporate world, but honestly in any world, business world, corporate world, is that we'll create a 30-minute presentation, which is okay to do, but then when we go to practice it, we practice all 30 at the same time, we do it two, three times, then we get exhausted, we go, I don't want to practice anymore, then we get lunch, and then we never practice again until the day of the presentation. So I do. Why do you suggest we practice the intro and the conclusion a whole bunch of times? And the answer to that brilliant question is momentum, momentum, momentum. 
So let's take that same analogy again. So if we use that 90 minutes for my strategy, the first 30 minutes, you'll just present the intro, but your energy will change. Because after 30 minutes, you'll go, wow, my introduction is solid. Wow, this is so good, so energizing. And then all of your colleagues are really excited, like, wow, Andrea, your introduction is so good. So now you go into the next 30 minute slot, the same time that we allotted before, but we're, we're using the time differently now. Now, conclusion, 10 times, 15 times. Wow, Brendan, Andrea, your conclusion is so good. I'm so inspired. I love the way you summarized those points. It was so clear. I knew what to do exactly after. Very well done. Now you feel really good. You're like, wow, I'm, I'm already done two-thirds of your presentation. Even if that's not technically true, and you're, you're, but your mind thinks that because you go intro, middle, conclusion. Well, I'm done the intro and the conclusion, so let me just go get lunch and keep practicing. And then you just have a lot more energy and excitement when you tackle the dreadful middle. You talk about the intro. How do we do a good intro so we grab our audience, reel them in, and then how do we maintain that interest? Absolutely, Andrea. So there's two parts to that answer. The first part is just practicing it a lot already makes you stand out because most people's intro in corporate, let's face it, sucks. Because remember, it's relative to everybody else in the company. It's not relative to how Brendan gives an introduction when he's keynoting in front of a company. Right? That's not the comparison. The comparison is what's the other HR director doing in the company? And the HR director of the company sounds like this when they're introducing. So even if you implement nothing special, just practicing it a lot makes you stand out. The other reason why this is key is confirmation bias. So as human beings, when we see something that sounds good or looks good, like in a job interview, I'm sure you've talked about this on, on the HR podcast, we assume we make up stories in our mind that are either positive or negative based on what that person did. Example, if somebody is late to an interview, even if they're the best candidate that day, potentially, our mind is going to make up stories as to why this person is a bad candidate because we've already convinced ourselves that person is bad because they were late. But then the, the other part of that is also true. People will make positive assessments about you if you start really well. So if your intro is amazing and your middle is above average, people will assume the presentation was great because the first two minutes were like, oh my God, Andrew really grabbed me. I really should pay attention to the rest. So that's the why. Now let's get into the how. So I always like to say there's no right answer to coming up with an exceptional introduction. Like you could start with a question, you could start with a story, you could start with a powerful hook. But the main idea here, Andrea, is what's your key idea and what is the best way to defend that key idea? So an example I can use in corporate is if you're giving a keynote, an L&D workshop, learning and development for a team, that beginning story could be like how much you struggled with this skill at the beginning of your career. But I think the key is to make this more practical, pick up a, a context in your role as a, in the company or as a business owner that is the most fun, that has the least stakes and get more creative with those intros in those presentations first. So starting a presentation and having a great intro and you were giving the example and you're like, the other HR director is going, oh, well, hello, welcome to my presentation. Okay, so what if that's how you actually feel about your presentation? How do you manage that? So when I was doing case competitions, right, 
all in which just essentially professional sports for nerds. That's how I learned how to speak in college. And I'd go up in front of executives who'd win these business competitions. That's what it was. So I could be really creative, really, really open, have flat, like crazy introductions. So if it was, I was speaking to the executives of Walmart, I would start a presentation saying something like, ever since I was a kid, I loved going to Walmart because there's video games and croissants and that would be wild. And, the, and then that would be my type of intro. But when I went to corporate, and I was giving presentations within within IBM and I was talking to different groups. Even if my introductions were a little bit more placated, they're a little bit more professional, I still stood out because I went from extreme to the means. So here's what I mean. Because I practiced really odd introductions, when I went back to corporate and I toned down, even my toned down introduction was really good. Pick a presentation which is usually for my corporate clients, a pro bono workshop you give outside of work. So let's say you know, an executive at IBM does a design thinking workshop with a group of children, like teenagers. So he'll show up really vibrant there, but then he'll bring some of that energy back into corporate boring meetings, et cetera. Mm -hmm. I can think of a million boring presentations that HR has to make, or at least seem boring on the service. And I love the energy, right? That would that would really help. Okay, so different audiences want different things. I've worked, many of us will have worked with a bunch of engineers who want to see a whole bunch of numbers. And then you've got your HR audiences who love the stories and the emotional connections. And how do we navigate that and customize our approach? It'll depend on the severity of the presentation. So, th so there's a very big difference between giving a small little workshop on a Friday at noon about something, a new HR policy that's being implemented versus, hey, we're implementing a new technology software. We need to do stakeholder issues with everybody. We need to communicate change management to make sure the user adoption rate of this new software is through the roof or else we'll lose a shit ton of money. That's a very different kind of presentation, right? So the key here for somebody who's really busy, like everybody listening to this podcast, what you have to do strategically, because we won't have time to implement through your question every presentation. That won't make any sense. That's where the random word exercise and doing all those foundational works comes into play with presentations where we don't have time to prepare for. So what you want to do strategically is every week you look at your calendar and you just ask yourself, what is the most important presentation here? That's where you got to take the time. You got to go to engineers directly. You have to have lunch with them. You have to talk to them and ask them, hey, what's important to you? Oh, this is important to me. This is important to me. This is important. To and then you go, hmm, okay, let me use some numbers. I should add a couple of slides as to why we're making the change from not just a emotional perspective, but also a numerical one. So that's what. So that's the way you tell the story. And then with our HR peeps, that same presentation, I'm getting really tactical to become something more of, here's John, right? John used to struggle a lot with his payroll. It'd take him four weeks to, to get his tax returns. And um, imagine how bad he would feel. Some people go, oh man, John must feel really bad. But now with this new software, he's excited, he's happy, and he's using this. So the key is to use is a mix of both of those strategies. Quick question about slide decks. What's prevailing opinions? about slide decks these days. Right. So so everyone's got their own opinion about slide decks. Totally they do. 
that's why you'll notice like I'm never giving like this is the right way to do it. For for me, I always start the principle, which is what is the best way to defend your key idea? What's the point of the presentation? The point is to get our point across. So how do we bring this back into slides? So there's different areas of thought. The first one, let me segment this a little bit. So if you're giving an L&D type presentation, right, a lunch and learn about a certain topic or a new policy. So with that specific presentation, you could be a lot more playful with the slides because it's not like you're going to get fired if you mess up this presentation. It's not like a high stakes thing. And we have a lot of those presentations in corporate. So in those types of settings, I like images a lot more. Or if you're going to have words on a slide, one idea per slide. I don't like it to be crowded. That's the first point. But then there's other pieces. Let's say, let's go, we go to scenario two, which is you're presenting to a senior leadership team and you're going through the details of a specific change management strategy, or you, you're working with a like Boston Consulting Group or McKinsey, and you're going through a really detailed analysis and you have to represent the findings of the consulting firm, which is a completely different context. That's a lot more high stakes. So in those types of rooms, what I found on average, on average, the execs want to see the details. That's why you'll see a lot of McKinsey slides, especially their age mm-hmm. change management. It's very crowded, but it's for a reason because the HR, right? The exec team wants to see all the details. Every title is like not even a title. It's like the specific findings. So like the slide begins with, we found that 97% of your staff after interviewing them had X outcomes and there's like graphs and stuff and it's super crowded. The reason the exec team prefers that way is because they can read it on the way to the meeting. So they look at it, they have all the context. Mm-hmm. So then when they get into the meeting, they're only asking questions. That uh, That's actually the reason behind it. So it's not because they want to hear you present, usually. Mm-hmm. So that's the the second scenario I can think of. You can throw a new one at me that you feel I'm not touching on. And then I would say the third one, which I'm not 100% of an expert on in HR, is is the compliance side, where you're sharing something really difficult really complicated or really traumatic right like you're you have to fire people like uh you're firing a group of 100 people on the spot or something bad is happening in the company or there is some allegation mm. so in in that type of situation the structure changes fundamentally in that case you want to keep the presentation short and sweet and you want to have detailed slides as well because you want to make sure your company's not liable so in presenting, just like presentation at a meeting, how can we improve our nonverbal cues? So meetings, we have to focus on three main questions to keep it simple. What's the goal? What's the contribution? And how do we communicate that contribution? So let's go through these. Number one, what's the goal? If I would sit down, everybody listening to this podcast, whether you're a manager in HR, whether you're a VP, and I sat you down next to your computer on a Sunday evening, and I looked at all your meetings that week, Monday to Friday, and I asked you, what's the purpose of all these meetings? You wouldn't have a good answer for me on 20 to 30% of those meetings, minimum. So those are the meetings where you kind of have to push back a little bit. Sometimes you can't. Sometimes you can, based on your title, where you push back, you go, why am I in this meeting? And you buy your time back. That's number one. Number two is what's the contribution? So now for the remaining, let's say, 70% of the meeting, you look at it and you go, okay, this meeting needs to happen, but why do I need to be in the meeting? 
And then you'll find for another 20% of those 70, you'll go, you know what? Like John can take care of this meeting. I don't really need to be, I don't really have anything meaningful to say here. John knows what he's doing. Julia knows what she's doing. And that comes back to empowering your team. What I've noticed a lot at the exec level, Andrea's a lot of them get pulled into by their direct reports because they're scared about managing the meeting alone. That's where you have to have harder conversations with them. Just encourage them, empower them to go, you don't need me. You're so good at what you do. Or, or we in HR or wherever want them and we want to pull them in because we're, you know, uncomfortable with whoever's going to be there, whatever questions they're going to ask. Exactly. Uh-huh. And and then there's the third piece, which is the contributions. Now things get a little bit more interesting where this will this will apply i mean starting at manager but it becomes even more urgent as you climb up the ranks and in a company from an hr perspective now what you do is you look at all your meetings and you circle your top three so your top three are based on what is the highest stakes not just for the business but for my own career selfishly to me so an example of a high stakes could be a big sales presentation that you have to sit Mm -hmm. on that's one. A second one is an A-plus interview with a dinner with a high-level prospect. Another one is a promotional interview. So you're being you're being called up for promotion. Depends on the company you're part of, but it's usually a case study interview. So you'll get into it. You have to make a case as to why you should be a VP in the company. Mm-hmm. So those types of meetings when you're preparing with your sponsors, those are your most important meetings. So that's where you want to be spending 80% of your time which is the third question, how do I convey my ideas better? So basically my strategy is you are not practicing for 100% of your meeting. That is impossible. You are practicing for only the top three meetings of every single week. If you just do that, you will get the results. Hey, two common mistakes that people make in meet in presentations and what's the fix? Two big mistakes that people make presentation. Honestly, the biggest one is consistency. Like the, the like, I'll say the tactic around puzzle, but most people won't actually sit down and just do oh, the intro yeah, ten yeah. times. Yeah, they won't actually do the conclusion, even if the tips that I'm sharing are not rocket science. Even because I've spent years simplifying this for people, and I still have many more years to go to simplify it even more. So what I'd encourage everybody listening, because that's the big mistake, honestly, is just book 50 minutes in your calendar every week to just sit down with yourself 50 minutes and just bring more intention towards your life. Look, use that 50 minutes to yourself. It's literally, you do nothing. You just open your calendar and you go, what are the most important meetings? Just that exercise alone will get you 80% of the result because you'll go, crap, I forgot about the meeting on Wednesday at 7 p.m. where if I mess this up, I am, my career is in jeopardy if I mess this up. So then you, you know right away. So mistake number one is really not taking the time to focus in on the ones that are important. Mistake number two? Yeah, I would say mistake number two will depend on the context of the communication. So if I use meetings as an example, the, the this mistake is one that prevents you from getting promoted, in my opinion. And the mistake is making sure other people's points get heard. So what I used to do a lot and why I got a lot of recognition at my company when I was working there, even if I was a junior, even if I was... I wasn't an executive, is I acted like one in the meeting. Not by being boastful or you know, full of ego or anything like that, because not because most of the executives interacted don't have that. Is it's more about like, are you 
getting other people to participate in the meeting. So let's say Alan is in the back and never talks. I would encourage that person. Hey, Alan, I know you have a lot to say, like take five minutes and just think about something because I'd love to call on you in a few moments. So I would take that leadership role and people would really appreciate that, especially the people who didn't talk that often in meetings. And nobody does this in corporate. They just take all the shine on themselves and that does not benefit your career long-term. It might benefit you short-term, but does not benefit you long-term. Okay, handling questions. We've talked about this. Besides the question exercise, any tips to handling questions? Absolutely, Andrea. So just as a quick recap for 30 seconds, the question drill is, yeah, you take a bunch of questions and then you write them down and you just answer one every day for five minutes. And that helps you just be more calmer in the way that you answer. The nuance that I'll add is how do you practice this more efficiently? One thing that I feel is missed when I teach the question drill is people think this is largely an individual exercise, which is the most efficient way to do this, right? Because you don't need partners. Mm. But the right way to do it technically, and it's much more fun, by the way, is to do it with colleagues at work. So let's say every week, I did this a lot in HR consulting when I was at IBM, we would sit down with our bosses, frankly, because we didn't know the answer to 90% of the questions clients were throwing our way because I was a 22-year-old kid. So what I would do is I would make a list of questions that I just had a lot of trouble answering, and I would just go through that question, those lists of questions with my colleagues and bosses. So I'd start with colleagues first, where I would talk to other entry-level consultants and say, hey, John, how did you handle this one? And John goes, oh, this is how I would have done it. Oh, that's brilliant. And I just steal his answer. Back and forth, by the way, he'll do the same thing with me. Oh, I would. Oh, that's how I dealt with that client. Oh, and then he steals from me in a good way. It's a positive thing. Mm -hmm. And then there's going to be 20% with me or or John or Julia does not know the answer. And then we escalate that to upper management and go like, dude, I don't know how to answer this question. And then he goes, oh, that's how you need to handle with that client. And they're really tricky because of X, Y, Z. And they go, perfect. And then I know how to handle that situation. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of this one. Any final thoughts about making presentations? Right. So I think the final thought is I know I know a lot of the details I shared in part two is really overwhelming because because you asked me a lot of context in HR. So I went a lot deeper in my in what I know about the field. But I think to keep this really simple for people, just implement puzzle and you'll be ahead of 80% of people in your company. Most people do not know that strategy. And if you're just doing that, you will save so much time in your week. And if I had to give one small bonus for those of you who do the first one, just book 15 minutes on a Sunday evening or morning to just look at your meetings that week and just circle the ones that have the highest impact so you know what to focus on energetically. If you just do those two things, I think you'll get 80% of the value from this this episode. Hey, all right. I'm going to do that after we're done here. Well, thanks, Brendan. I am going to think about those meetings that I have this week and... uh... Pay attention to the ones that are going to make the most impact. Uh, We have reached the end of this episode, though. Thanks for listening out there. We'll catch you next time when I talk with another insightful guest.